Hey everyone, this is Darren with another podcast update, another unique episode coming up in which we're going to post the audio of a sermon that I uh, crafted for our Bible study last January as we were going through Revelation. Um, I wanted to do something that was helpful for them from the perspective of the idea that sermons and Bible studies are a little bit different. In sermons, we have a unique desire to motivate and encourage, whereas in Bible studies, we're really just kind of studying the Bible for what it says, and we may not apply it to our lives as much, but a sermon definitely has application. Otherwise, you know, it's not really useful for us. So, That is what uh, this post is all about. This is over Revelation 6 and 7, which if you're following along with us in the greater story and have heard all our sermons at Forefront up to this point, that is what is up next in our uh, Revelation series. So I preached on Revelation 4 and 5 this past Sunday, so here's a sermon audio of Revelation 6 and 7. I hope you enjoy. Thanks a lot. You are listening to More to the Story a weekly podcast featuring Pastor Drew Tarwater and Pastor Darren Enns of Forefront Church in Denver, Colorado. Each week, more to the story, podcast will follow the Forefront Church Sunday Sermon as Pastor Drew and Pastor Darren guide you through the Bible from Genesis through Revelation. Every podcast will feature in-depth analysis of the sermon and answer questions about the Bible. Now, here is more to the story. So I have a lot of baggage with a specific word, which is probably a little ironic because I I lead it, and that word is worship. So as your creative arts pastor, normally I stand right here and I I lead us in music, because worship can be music, and music can be worship, but that's kind of the, the, the point, right? Worship can be a lot of different things, and it's not always singing. And yet I still know that when someone comes up to me at the end of a service and says, oh, pastor, the, the worship was wonderful this morning, well, you're talking about the music, right? Or when someone says, oh, I really just connect with Jesus through worship, well, you mean music. But I think most of us probably know that music is not the only part of worship, right? So in the Bible, there are, um, the Bible is very concerned with making sure that we worship correctly and that we worship the right thing. Um, For example, worship in the Bible is often connected to a bodily posture, such as bowing down and worshiping something. Uh, It's also connected to animal sacrifice in the temple from the Old Testament law. Of course, there are psalms that speak of singing in the same breath as worship, but worship in this context is often translated as service. Or at least that's what what a Hebrew word behind worship might also mean. So Psalm 100 says, Worship or serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. So what do you worship? Hopefully you worship Jesus, right? That's, That's a desire on all of our hearts. But I want you to think about maybe something else that you might worship. And here's an example. Do you have an altar set up in your home to something that's not Jesus? I think if future excavators would, or future archaeologists would come and excavate our house, I think they might find that most Americans have an altar set up to our televisions. Because we have these rooms that have couches that are all arranged so you can see the screen. Now, depending on your age, you might, that might be reduced to a phone, but you get the idea. Are you worshiping that screen? 
I think a good way to think of worship is anything that you give your time, attention, and allegiance to. So if you spend three to four hours every night giving your time, attention, and allegiance to a television, maybe, maybe you might be worshiping that a little bit. Just maybe. Or maybe here's another thing. Are you more excited when your team wins than you are when we're in this room worshiping Jesus? Do you, do you fist bump the air so you hit the ceiling when we're worshiping Jesus? Or do you only do that when your team wins? I know many people in our culture, grown men, paint their bodies and go yell at men in a tights playing with a leather ball, right? Now, I'm, I am a football fan, but, but I also know that we have to be careful of this. So what else do we worship? And this is the question that we're going to explore today as we look at Revelation chapter 6 and 7, because that passage is going to help us see that there is only one thing that is truly worthy of our worship. And along the way, we're going to discover several things that it would really be silly, and I can use stronger language than silly, but it would be silly for us to worship anything else, because there's only one God who can save us from the evil of this world. So let's go ahead and look at Revelation, and by way of introduction, because I know there's a couple of us in here who haven't gone through the Revelation Bible study, I just wanted to say a couple things about the book, because it's one of the weirdest and and toughest for us to understand. First of all, we need to understand that this was to a specific group of people, and we read about this in Revelation, excuse me. In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, that there are these seven churches, they're in, in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and, and Jesus speaks to John, the author of Revelation, who then writes those things down and sends it to those churches. And it was also meant to be understood by those people. There's a, there's a couple texts in Revelation that say, um, blessed is the one who hears and obeys the words of this prophecy, and how else are we going to obey unless we unless we understand what's going on. How else are those first century readers going to obey unless they understand? And second, uh, I want to put up this picture for you. And again, you in the Bible study have seen this, but this is a political cartoon. And because we live in the United States of America, we know exactly what this is. This is a political cartoon, and, and if I put a sentence to it, it might be that... Politicians fight each other. That's what I might say. But how do we know that? Well, there's a couple things. First of all, you see the stars and the stripes. That's the American flag. Second of all, you see boxing gloves and trunks and shoes. So that's, that's a fighting metaphor. But the other one might be a bit more difficult for people who live outside of the United States to find. And it's what the animals represent in our country. So we have a donkey that represents the Democratic Party. Did I get that right? I think I got that right. And the Republican uh, Party is represented by the elephant. And so that's how we get politics in the mix. We might know there's fighting. Okay? So, but imagine if you're an Argentinian cattle farmer. You're just concerned about raising your beef, making sure that your herd does well, and you don't really care about the country way up to the north of you, the United States. You look at this and you might get boxing, you might get America, the United States if you recognize the flag thing, but I doubt you would get the politics from the two animals up there. And here's how this relates to Revelation. We are the Argentinian cattle farmer when it comes to interpreting Revelation. 
like this political cartoon. So we have to work really, really hard to understand how they would have viewed these symbols and these metaphors that we get in the book of Revelation. And that's going to be one of our biggest focuses this evening, because we're going to see the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And there's all kinds of popular culture stuff about the four horsemen. Is there a Johnny Cash song or something like that? I think there's a song where they just talk about the four horsemen. Johnny Cash, I thought someone would would get that. I don't know. Sorry. (laughs) But it's, it's all about what these things represent. And we have to learn what they represent for them before we start to relate them to our world. So... There we go. There's by way of introduction. Let's go ahead and dive in. We're going to read Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 through 8 to get through these four horsemen and uh, the four horses and their riders. Here we go. I watched as the lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Now, this lamb is Jesus. In the previous passage, he is the one who is worthy to to open these, these seals. So Jesus is opening these. And then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, come. I looked and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow and he was given a crown and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, I looked, and there before me was a black horse, and its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a day's wages, and three quarts of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of a fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by the sword, famine, and plague, and by the beasts of the the earth. So let's go through each of these horses and look at what they may have represented to the original audience, and then we'll kind of reflect on on what what those might mean for us. So horse number one, the most important images here are is that the horse is white, it, and the rider has a bow and a crown, and then also that he's a conqueror. Now, white is a very important color in the book of Revelation. Here's a couple of examples, and it's often associated with holiness or godliness, proximity to the throne of God. Saints usually are wearing white robes. Second, God's throne is white. Third, Jesus appears in a white cloud. And fourth, and here's the big one as it relates to this first horse and its rider. In Revelation 19, Jesus is... That was a loud car. Let me start over. (laughs) In Revelation 19, Jesus is wearing... or He's riding a white horse. He has many crowns. And he has a weapon, but it's not a bow, it's a sword. And the sword is coming out of his mouth, which symbolizes the truth of his, of his speech. So what we see here is that there's a comparison between this first horse and rider and Jesus. Jesus is riding a white horse, so is this rider. Jesus has many crowns. This one only has one crown. And they both have a weapon, this one a sword, this one a bow. Also, Jesus conquers, but he conquers by being killed himself, 
not by killing others like this first writer does. So what we see here is that this first horse is actually a parody of Jesus. It's a parody. This writer is trying to set himself up as a god to be worshipped by imitating Jesus. So this first horse and the rider represents false religion. Only God and the Lamb, that is Jesus, is worthy of our worship. And it's this parody that is a sad imitation of Jesus, that anyone who would worship it would fall sadly short of the truth. So there's our first rider. Horse number two. Horse number two is red. It's kind of an ominous color. And its rider is given power to, listen to this vocabulary, to take peace from the earth. Some of you may have heard of a Latin term called Pax Romana. Does that ring a bell? It's a Latin term that that means peace of Rome. This was propaganda that was put out there by Rome in the first century that said, basically, aren't you glad that we're here? Aren't you happy for the stability and security? What a wonderful empire Rome is. Aren't you glad? But the thing is, While you heard these things or read these things, you would see Roman guards marching through your city. You know the Roman garrison of hundreds of troops is just over that bluff, over that hill. How did Rome come to conquer the the entire region from modern-day Iraq all the way to Spain, including Greece and and North Africa? How, How did they come to rule that area? It was by war. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, is a, is a good, peaceful thing. That You always have reminders in front of you that they took this place by force. They had to defeat your military in order for them to promote this peace. And so what we see here, whereas the first rider represented false religion, the second rider represents false peace. It is not a true peace, even though Rome was trying to put that in front of you. And a false religion goes together with false peace because there was actually a goddess of Rome called Roma who they would force the rest of the empire to worship her. And she was a military figure. She had armor on. She had weapons. And that was part of the worship of the empire of Rome. And yet, remember, who has the power and authority to let these horses and riders come? It's the lamb. He is the one who's in charge of letting all of these things happen. The lamb and God, of course, the lamb representing Jesus, they're the only ones who are actually worthy of the worship. And some of you might remember this from our previous Bible studies. The Prior to this scene, we have the throne room of God where the lamb comes into the room and approaches the throne, accepts the power and authority that he's given, and then a huge worship scene breaks out. Everyone just praises glory and honor and authority and power to the Lamb because you are worthy to take and open the scrolls. So let's keep going. We've got two more horsemen to get through, and then we will pause and reflect. Horse number three, there's really one key image here that he's holding a pair of scales. Now, these scales were a system of weights and measurements that were to be used in the marketplace. So say you need to go buy some wheat or buy some fruit for whatever meal you have. You have your, your, your drachme or your, your gold and silver in your pocket, and you, you go to this place and you're going to buy this much wheat, and it costs this much. You're going to take out your coins. You're going to put them on one side of the scale, and the merchant has a weight 
that he has predetermined the price of that amount, and he puts it on the other side. These two balances have to weigh out to make sure that your gold or your silver, whatever you got, is the right weight. And so what's happening here then is this writer is in control of the economic marketplace. And there's a voice that calls out, and it's signaling a famine. It says over in verse 6, it says, A quart of wheat for a day's wages. Think about a quart. What, about that bag? Like a sandwich bag. That's a quart, right? And how much do you make in a day? Well, that's a little extreme. How much flour can you actually mill from that? I don't know. We're, we're city folk, but that's, that's what that is. And then three quarts of barley for a day's wages. Barley was a little less quality. That's why you could buy more of it for a day's wages. There's, there's a famine going on. Basic foods are scarce, and yet don't touch the oil and the wine. That's what that voice says. In the Roman Empire in the early 90s, there was, a, there was a food shortage where the price of wheat and barley to make bread started to go up, but the luxuries like oil and wine were readily available. That's because farmers knew that they could plant more olive groves to make oil and more vineyards to make wine, and they would make more money off of that land than if they planted wheat or barley. Because Rome would buy it all. They wanted their luxuries. They had enough money to buy the bread and the luxuries too. And so if you're in the middle of Rome, you have bread, you have oil and wine, you're thinking, man, what a prosperous life we're living. Whereas the empire around you is starving because they can't buy bread. And so this rider and and his horse represents a false prosperity. You cannot survive on the luxuries. You can't survive on oil and wine. And that lux- those luxuries, that luxurious life is an awful attention of your worship if you know other people are starving. Because once again, we see that only the lamb and God are worthy of our worship. Now, horse number four represents what happens when you give into a false religion and a false peace and a false prosperity, what you get is a false life. When you buy into those things, you are left with nothing in the end. This horse, the color is a sick, pale, yellow-green kind of color. The Greek word there is chloros, which is where we get the word chlorine. And chlorine in its natural state is this sickly, yellowish-green color. This is not a pleasant color of a horse. No breeder has ever tried to get this color from a horse before. Because it's, it, it, once you buy into all those falsehoods, you're left with nothing. It's sick, and it's death. Death is on that horse, and falling close behind is the underworld, the realm of the dead, represented by Hades. And so he comes and he cleans house of anyone who has worshipped those falsehoods. Because once you give into those things, you don't have life. You're living a lie. You're living a falsehood. And death takes you without any fight from you. So here's the question for us then. What do these things represent for us? What is our false religion? What is our false peace? And what is our false prosperity that when you buy into them, they lead to a false life? 
Now, these first century readers had to be made aware of these types of things because they may, may not have even known of the evil that was behind the things that they were giving their worship and allegiance to. And so if we're going to let Revelation speak into our context right now in, in Denver in the 21st century, we're going to have to take a step back. We're going to have to admit that Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit are the only ones who are actually worthy of our worship and everything else, everything else, we have to hold with an open hand. And then we have to ask him and let, and let Jesus open our eyes to how we worship other things and fall short of worshiping him alone. So here's a couple ways I think that these falsehoods are present in our culture. So let's talk about false religion first. And there's a lot of different ways that I can go, right? Like I could talk about sports, professional, collegiate, or whatever. I could talk about money. But I'm going to talk about one that I think digs down a little deeper and gets possibly at more of a root cause that we have these other symptoms. And that is worship of ourselves. Our culture has really taken this to the extreme because independence is a virtue in the Western world, which includes America. Independence, being able to pull myself up by, by my own bootstraps. Uh, and we, we use phrases like, oh, you can be whatever you want to be when you grow up. Uh, you, can, you can be whoever you want to be. Okay? Or, or about, how about this? Just be true to yourself. Or I've put it really succinctly, you do you. Other people have said that, of course. But and, and, have, have you said these phrases? I certainly have said these phrases. I'm probably going to say to Evangeline, hey, you can be whatever you want to when you grow up. You can choose whatever career you want. And I think those are healthy types of things, but we have to be careful. Because here's what happens. When we turn that hyper-individualism up, and we start to look inside of ourselves for who we are, we actually don't like what we discover because we're broken human beings. And so once we turn inwards and we worship ourselves, we, we don't like what we find, and so then we want to try and change who we are. And now our culture around us has started to say, yeah, that's fine, you can be whoever you want to be. Literally, you can be whoever and whatever you want to be. And, and that's a symptom of worshiping ourselves. Have you ever thought a cookie was a chocolate chip cookie, but you bit into it and it had raisins in it? This is the worst experience of my life. I'm exaggerating, but it's, the, it's awful because I'm a chocolate chip lover, and, and I, I call them ninja raisins because in the right light, you, can, you think it's, it's chocolate chips, but then you pick it up and you bite it and you taste fruit. And you want to throw that Frisbee across the room because you're expecting chocolate. When you look into yourself and you don't like what you find, you want to throw yourself aside. But the thing is, when we actually worship God alone and him and the lamb who sits on his throne, and we allow him to define who we are, then everything falls into place. And actually, the brokenness inside of us is healed. When we worship God alone, he comes into our life and he actually fixes that brokenness inside of us. And yet our attention is still not on ourselves. It is on God and others. So that is the correction to worship of self. This false religion that is very prevalent in our society today. So let's talk about false peace. kind of goes hand in hand with false prosperity, at least the way I'm gonna, going to describe it. There's another idea in our culture that is leading itself towards this 
progress that we're going to get to a future utopia, a future peace, that everything will be fine and that we're eventually getting there. And Americans specifically have believed this for a very long time. It started during the Industrial Revolution where people thought life, quality of life was improving. Eventually it's going to be perfect. Well, if we allow the world wars to say anything about that, things are certainly getting worse. If we allow the scriptures to say anything about that, it's certainly getting worse. And in American politics, there is this idea that we're progressing towards a future perfect society. But that's not true. And if, if we don't believe that, well, then we start to turn and look backward and say, well, we need to recapture the prosperity of the past. And if we can just reclaim that, then everything will be good. But that's the false prosperity. Yesterday has its own problems. I was talking with a lot of you and, and how when you were growing up, there was, there was the Vietnam War, there was the, the hippie movement and all that kind of stuff, right? That, and and the, the Cultural Revolution. Yesterday has its own problems, today has its own problems, and tomorrow will also have its own problems. Both of these are also a false peace and false prosperity. And so if we give in to me, myself, and I being the one that we worship, and, and, or in order for society to put ourselves in evil, we have to get to a future peace or to this, this prosperity of the past. If we give in to any of that, what we're left with is a falsehood that leaves us with nothing in the present. And when death comes for us, we cannot stand. We cannot stand. And our passage ends with a little bit of doom and gloom. In verse uh, 9, the Lamb opens the fifth seal, and we see that there are, under the altar, there are souls who had maintained a testimony, and that they were under this altar in, in heaven, right? And so the, these are martyrs who had maintained the faith, and they're so desperate for Jesus just to, you know what, get rid of these seals, would you just come now? Like, so what's going to happen? Things are getting worse. And Jesus says, I know, but hold on. And they're given a white robe to wear, and they're told to be patient until it actually happens. And then in verse 12, it happens. Verse 12 says, I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to the earth. This is creation caving in on itself. Genesis 1 being undone. This is the judgment of God showing up. And then, look at verse 15. Anyone who has worshipped something that was false, any object of our worship, in fact, that, that is not God and the Lamb, is running for the hills. Verse 15 says, Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in the caves. And rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? If we have given our allegiance, our worship, our, our time, attention to anything other than God and the Lamb, when God actually shows up to judge the earth at the end of time, all of those objects are running for the hills, and they're, they're screaming and crying for death. They want death. They want the mountains to fall on them. And they ask this question, who can stand in the face of God and the Lamb in his wrath? 
Church, I'll tell you who can stand. It's the people of God. The next chapter, John hears people getting sealed with the stamp of God. The number is 144,000. It's a square number. A square number represents the people of God in Revelation. And then he turns and he looks and he sees in verse 9 of chapter 7. After this, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could even count. Oh wait, I thought it was counted. It was 144,000. No, when John actually looks, it's a vast number that is uncountable. And where are they from? They're not just from Israel. They're from every nation, tribe, people, and language. And what are they doing? Standing. The people of God in the day of God's judgment and wrath are standing. And then what happens? They worship. They do what they have been doing their entire life. Worshiping God and the Lamb alone. At the end of the day, here is what the author of Revelation has put before us. There are all kinds of things on this earth that claim to be good and true. And they claim to bring peace and prosperity. But at the end of the day, if we worship Jesus in the full knowledge that his life, death, and resurrection is our salvation, then we will be the ones who are standing in his presence at the end. Only God is worthy of our worship. By the end of Revelation, we get this image where heaven is descending from the clouds, coming down to earth to be united with earth, just like a bride walks down the aisle to be united with her husband in marriage. And the people who witness that moment are those people of God who have stood on the day of judgment and worshipped him. And they are gifted true life, not a false life. And so I urge all of us, please be vigilant about what it is that you and I give our time and our allegiance and our attention to. What else do we worship that might detract from our worship of the Lamb? If there's anything I would love for each of us to do tonight before we go to bed or maybe tomorrow when we wake up, is that we would sit down and actually have a piece of paper and a pen or a pencil in front of us and just ask God, what do I give my time to? What do I spend my money on? What might I be doing that I really should turn over to God so that I can make sure that I am worshiping Him? We seek to ally ourselves with the one who gives life. And those that bring death, those that worship those falsehoods, they will reap what they sow. Death. But those who worship the true God will reap what He sows which is eternal life. Only God and the Lamb are worthy of our worship. Let's pray. You have been listening to More to the Story, a weekly podcast featuring Pastor Drew Tarwater and Pastor Darren Enns of Forefront Church in Denver, Colorado. Each week, More to the Story podcast will follow the Forefront Church Sunday sermon as Pastor Drew and Pastor Darren guide you through the Bible from Genesis through Revelation. Every podcast will feature in-depth analysis of the sermon and answer questions about the Bible. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another edition of 
more to the story.